We would call that the fear of man. But the fear of man many times is produced by having a shame base. One of the symptoms of that is you rehearse over and over previous conversations you had with somebody and what you should have said differently and, what, and, and how you could have come off differently. And it, oh, I mean, it, it's okay to analyze that uh, quickly, but to uh, neurose over that is a symptom of shame. Defensiveness, avoidance, wanting to hide in public, a quote, not be seen when somebody's taking a photo, that kind of a thing. You don't want to be seen. Adam and Eve did that. They were shame-free until they fell, and then they were hiding when God came out. They didn't want to be seen by God in public. They don't have the freedom to shine. Insecurity in negotiations and conflict. Feeling rejectable, which interrupts the process of communicating and assimilating information because your mind becomes confused and you actually your mind just blanks out. You're talking to somebody and because you have such deep insecurities that comes from shame, you just get confused with the information or your mind just blanks out in the middle of a conversation. Now, you know, that happens to me, but I did drugs before I got saved and I'm still, I'm still in my healing process. But we're all, we're all in the process of being healed, right? But as I said, there are other sources for these things, but shame is a main source uh, for these symptoms. Feeling inadequate, flawed, or bad. Difficulty in receiving love. Difficulty in receiving gifts. Difficulty in receiving aid from others. Or asking for help because you don't want others to be inconvenienced for you. And difficulty difficulty with recognition, being recognized for your accomplishments. These are all sources of shame. We just want to hide. But Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Get up on that hill and shine for me. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So here are five sources of shame. Now, I am going to talk about good shame and bad shame because there is good shame. And we'll talk about that. Um, I came from a, a teaching that was extreme and it eliminated all shame. I was, I was leading the, the choir in a church and people start sleeping together and their sin rampant. And I try to confront them and they'd say, no shame, brother, no shame. I'm like, oh, this is sick. <laughs> you know, you can take the no shame message and completely numb your consciousness, your conscience to healthy shame where your conscience knows right from wrong. That is very, very dangerous. That is not what I'm talking about. There is good, healthy shame, but then there is bad shame. And so we want to make sure we look at both of these and don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Original shame is the first source of shame. Look at Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So you say, well, see, shame's bad. No, at that point, there was nothing to be ashamed of. But after the fall, there was sin that entered into our, our bodies, into our gene, into our spirits that produces this, uh, uh, this residual shame. It's a knowledge, it's, a, it's an unconscious knowledge that we are not perfect. We have fallen from the glory of God, the perfection of God, and we feel this shame about this disconnect, that we are imperfect. And so we do all sorts of weird things to come across perfect. David, the man after God's own heart, knew this. Psalm 51.5 says this, Surely I have been a sinner from birth. 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So what do we do when we feel the shame on the inside of us? Many people try to deny it or live free from good shame in an effort to live a guilt-free life, which is incredibly dangerous. In fact, I did something really stupid this, this, uh, this week. I went on Google. I wasn't even thinking. And I, I wanted to get an image for the PowerPoint, so I put in freedom from shame in Google Images. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Good thing I have my computer on strict, right? The, the settings, you know, let anything come through. Let some stuff come through. Don't let anything come through. And even on don't let anything come through, some things came through that I guess they feel are appropriate because we have to celebrate no shame. Oh, my goodness. That is not freedom from that kind of shame. Is not the freedom from shame I'm talking about. In fact, I want to set this up. Uh, cornerstone very clearly in our minds by reading ephesians 4 17 through 24 in the lord's name everybody say in the lord's name in the lord's name name, i tell you this do not continue living like those who do not believe their thoughts are worth nothing they do not understand and they know nothing because they refuse to listen well that's just beating around the bush isn't it so they cannot have the life that god gives here we go they have lost all feeling of shame And they use their lives for doing evil. They continually want to do all kinds of evil. But you have not, but you learned, but what you learned in Christ was not like this. Everybody say, in Christ. I know that you heard about him and that you are in him, so you were taught the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught to leave your old self, to stop living the evil way you lived before. That old self becomes worse. Because people are fooled by the evil things they want to do. But you were taught to be made new in your hearts, to become a new person. That new person is made to be like God, made to be truly good and holy. (laughs) I was on the way to church today, and Lily, my seven year old, says, Daddy, what are you going to preach today? And I said, I'm preaching on shame, freedom from shame. And they got really silent. And I said, do you know what shame is? And I explained what shame meant. And then she said, shame on the devil. <laughs> and then Ava, my six-year-old, said, yeah, shame on the devil. And then, uh, and then, she, and then she said, uh, and then she was playing on, she said, shame on you, daddy. And I said, not shame on me. I said, now, if I made you feel bad or, you know, made you feel bad about yourself, then shame on me. And she goes, yeah, shame on you. And I said, no, not shame on me. And we started having this shame thing. And then Lily says, I forgive you, Daddy. And I said, <laughs> I said, okay, when well, I forgive you. So there's no shame over here. I said, Ava, you're still in shame. And she says, well, I forgive you too. And, and then, so we started doing the forgiveness thing and then the shame thing. And, and then they started singing the song that was on the radio and started changing the verses to shame on the devil, shame on the devil. It was just fun. And bizarre and weird and the whole thing. But when Ava felt like she was all by herself in the shame and Lily and I had forgiven one another and there's freedom, she wanted to be part of the freedom. And it was just, it was, you know, if you can't preach the gospel to a seven-year-old, you don't have a hold of it yet. You know what I mean? They pick up on it. They get the feeling of shame and good shame and bad shame. And so what's the solution to, to uh, original shame? The new birth. That's the only way out of original shame is the new birth. 
Look what 2 Corinthians 5 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That doesn't mean your emotions. It doesn't mean your previous thought life. It doesn't mean some of your behavior patterns. It means there is a seed put inside of your spirit, which is the nature of God. Recreated your human spirit. And what I have found is people who live out of their new identity. I, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I literally, he cre- that word made new or your new creation is the same word used in the Bible when God looked out and saw the earth was formed without void and he said, light be, and God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, he created something that never existed before. That's the exact same word used at the new birth. When you gave your life to Christ, he created something that had never existed before, a new you. And I found those who live out of that new identity, I am made brand new, are the most successful Christians. They don't allow their emotions um, or their belief systems dictate their life. They allow the identity as a new creation to dictate the way they process information that comes at them. Look what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God took the sinless Christ and poured it into ours, poured For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then, in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. Whew! But doesn't James say that a successful Christian looks into the perfect law of liberty, the Bible, like a mirror, and you see yourself, but then you walk away and you forget who you are? That's why we've got to be in the Word of God day and night to see ourselves in the, our new identity. It's kind of like the frog that, you know, the princess would kiss the frog. The frog turns into a prince, you know. So imagine being a frog and then the princess kisses the frog. And I turn into a prince. And then after you turn into a prince, you turn around... That's the way many of us live out our Christianity. We get born again. You feel that newness. You get taught the identity, your new identity. But then you kind of move away from the word, move away from prayer, move away from church. And that old identity comes back into you. Especially because there's other sources of shame that help it grow. The Bible says, Why, that took the breath out of me. That is, that is not a good sign. That's not a good sign, Kevin. The Bible says that the old man grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. In other words, you have this new life in you. And it's full of the wisdom of God and the passion of God and the faith of God. The revelation of God. And then we allow shame through other sources of shame. Sin. We quench the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We resist the Holy Spirit. It quenches that new life in you and you're not excited about God anymore. The Bible's boring. You don't want to go to church. Where did the passion go? The passion comes from the life source inside of you called the new birth, the life of God. And so when we preach against all shame and we go out and we live these ungodly lifestyles, we're literally dumping buckets of water on the fire on the inside of us and quenching that new life. It's still there, 
but it has been quenched by sin, which moves us to actual shame. Actual shame is sin that you and I actually do. It's not that we're born into a sinful state, but we actually sin. The only answer to actual sin is receiving God's amazing grace. I love the scripture that says where sin abounds, sometimes you just really blow it. And I want to say to you today that however big your sin is, however much sin you've piled up, God's grace is always going to stay right above it. So that when you turn and ask forgiveness, there's enough grace to wipe it out. That's all I want to say about that, because that is the truth. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Where sin abounds. Everybody say, where sin abounds. Grace much more abounds. Say it. So you see, you can live in shame over sin that you've committed, even when there's grace available to knock it out. And this, again, is a follower of Christ who does not understand that truth or doesn't believe that truth, so they can't apply that truth to themselves when they need it most. And shame will cause you to go back into performance-based religion where you're trying to earn God's favor, so forget about the cross. And it will cause you to once again start to hide. I don't want to go to church. I'm embarrassed. I feel ashamed. I don't want to go into prayer. I feel ashamed. Right? Because we don't understand that God's grace is bigger than our sin. And so we have to learn how to apply God's grace to our lives. Now, how do we do this? I want to say this. There is a teaching right now coming out of Singapore, um, and it is a heresy. But many people are buying into it, and it's really, really dangerous. Joseph Prince is preaching a doctrine that says you do not need to confess your sins to God after you're born again. And there's no need for repentance. Because once you have received Christ, he died for your sins once and for all. And people are buying into it, hook, line, and sinker. I want to say that if you live that way, you will be grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit, resisting the Holy Spirit, and you will remain in that condition because it's confession and repentance as a lifestyle that liberates you from the sin that you have committed and the guilt and the shame that comes with that sin and gives you a refreshing from the presence of the Lord that re-honors the Holy Spirit in your life and all of His life begins to flood through you again. Let me ask you a question. If your children sin against you, they disobey you, they, they're rebellious, is it important for them to say, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm sorry, Dad? Or do they not have to do that? Because they're your child, so why would they need to do that? Would they, do, you, do they need to do that? Do they need to come and reconcile with you and apologize? Do you have to do that to them when you've been overbearing and you've kind of had an outburst of wrath? I'm talking about you guys, not me. I'm looking at you when I say that because I've heard. That's how it goes down in your house. Don't you feel that I need to go and say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? Daddy, your mom, you know, we overdid it, right? And have you ever noticed how all of a sudden that the freedom, the intimacy that takes place there, Right? Well, let's eliminate that from our walk with God. How dangerous is that? To assume that God's all right with it. 
It completely eliminates the fear of the Lord, which will enable you to sin more easily and more easily and more easily because what you're doing is dumbing yourself to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift from God to keep us from behaviors that destroy our lives and our marriages and our homes. Amen? Amen? I can't believe people are buying this, but they are. Look at the Bible says, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, everybody say confess. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. I explained to you on Easter about why it's just why it's unjust for God not to forgive you when you confess your sins. Because Jesus already paid the price for your and my sins. So our sin was here, the scales are tipped. Our sin's down here, the scales are tipped. There's no way we can get the scales to be evened by our good works. Because the penalty of sin is death. Jesus Christ died for you and I. He exchanged, right? He said he poured our sin into Jesus and poured Jesus' righteousness into us, right? So when you gave your life to Christ... All of a sudden, Christ absorbs all of your sin and it goes into him and the scales tip back into your favor. That's why it would be unjust. It would not be just legally to go to God, confess your sin in Jesus' name and God not to accredit you righteousness, even though you don't deserve it. Because that means he'd be dishonoring the sacrifice that Jesus made for you at the cross. But how do you get, how do you get that exchange? Through confession of sin. If we confess our sins. You got to say it. You got to say what it is. And when you tell God what it is, it's not when he found out about it. It's about accountability. It's about boldness. It's about the cleansing of your soul. When you confess your sin, it comes out of you. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. Look what the psalmist says, the, the, the man after God's own heart. I don't know how these brothers and sisters jump around so many scriptures to preach stuff. I guess I do too, and my certain doctrines I guess I teach, I try to be, we all try to be as integral as possible, but some doctrines are just so obviously wrong. Look what, look what David says in Psalm 32, 3 through 5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Thank God. And when your child is disobeying, is your hand heavy upon them? Do you put pressure on them? Why? Because they're in a bad state. You need to get them free, right? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's what the Bible says. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. By the way, if you're wondering why your children do stupid stuff, because foolishness is bound up in their hearts. Their brain's not even fully developed yet. I mean, you know, they don't have a chance. Right? Do you know that? I mean, you know, I wish they knew that when we were kids because then we could use that for an excuse. We didn't have that excuse. Their ability, their, their ability to make wise choices and decisions has not been fully developed till they're 25. Man, I would have had excuses all the way up till I was 25. That's not right. I'm living in the wrong generation. What drives it far from them? The rod, correction, direction. So God loves us. It says if you don't get disciplined by God, the Bible says that you, you are fatherless. It actually uses a stronger word. It says God disciplines those he loves because he wants us free. 
Day and night your hand was upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Confession is a powerful source of freedom from shame. The Bible says in Hosea, God says, bring words with you when you come to repent. The conviction of the Lord plus your confession keeps your soul healthy and your conscience clear. But not just confession, but also repentance. Let me show you this very quickly because I want to move on. You know, we talk about the goodness of God leads one to repent. And again, that's the only thing we buy into. You sin, you're really running from God, you're really blowing it, and God just keeps showing you His goodness until you finally get overwhelmed with His goodness. And you go, God, you're so good to me, i just got to come back to you. Well, that's one way God does it. God has another expression of His goodness. And that is just flat of rebuking us. One disciple in the house of God. <laughs> Listen to this. Here's Paul. Ready? 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter. Here's why. In the church, there was some dude having sex with his mother-in-law. And Paul's like, what? Man, that sin's not even recorded outside of the church. And you guys aren't doing anything about it. Because you don't want to confront one another. So what does Paul do? He writes him a letter saying, you got to fix that situation. So he writes a second letter after they fix the situation. And he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorrow, but because your sorrow led you to say it out loud. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar, brings death. Because you fight back and you're angry. And See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm. We've lost alarm in our culture. What longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So we've looked at original shame which is solved by the new birth. You get a brand new you that has no sin in it. Your new reborn spirit is sinless. Secondly is actual shame where you and I actually sin and we need to actually confess our sins to get it out of our soul to God and God, because of what Christ did for us, will completely erase your sin and you start brand new like as though it never even happened. You may have to repair some human relationships. You may, have some ex- uh, you may have some consequences from sin depending on what it is you were doing. But I'm talking about the shame of the sin. It's taken away by the forgiveness of God. Many Christians have trouble with applying that to themselves because, they, because of that shame base. They don't feel worthy to receive good things. And so they can't even receive the forgiveness of God. But this next one is a real big one. The next source of shame 
is imposed shame. Imposed shame is shame that I have that I dump on you. In fact, I'm going to ask uh, Chris, why don't you come on up here with me? You know, in the Bible, in the book of Galatians, it says that each one of us are to bear our own burden. I just like carrying this with me because I look cool. I can even prop it up like this on my little kickstand. Yeah, I'm going to have to do this like this because I'm hip. There we go. Yeah. So in the book of, book of Galatians, it says that each one of us are to bear our own burden. That means that you have a responsibility in life that is your responsibility. You have your own relationship with God. You have to provide for your family. You've got to raise your kids. You've got to discipline them. You've got to own your responsibility in other people's lives. Uh, so we've got to be a good citizen. You've got to walk with God. What is your calling? Walk with God and fulfill your calling. So this is your personal responsibility. If you sin, you need to ask somebody to forgive you for your sin, and then God will forgive you because that's on me. But then there is imposed shame. That is when somebody else takes their shame and tries to shame you with it. Now, every time I mention a shame that is somebody shaming me, I want you to take one of those boulders and put it in my backpack, all right? Okay. Now, this is your shame. That's your pile of shame right there, all right? But you're going to be, like, sharing your shame with me, all right? So I'm a, I'm a child, and I have a, a parent who's constantly criticizing me. Okay? A parent who says, can't you do anything right? Or the rolling of the eye <sighs> over frustration. And that little child just kind of starts to shrink in their identity and their self-worth. Infidelity is shaming because it tells the other spouse that you're not enough. Divorce shames everybody. The guy feels like a failure. The woman feels like a failure. The children feel abandoned, like we weren't good enough for you guys to stay together. As much as we try to tell them it's not true, it goes on the inside of them. I'm I'm a product of a a divorced uh, household, and it took me years to recognize the shame, the identity that went into me that I'm afraid you're going to abandon me. I'm afraid you're going to leave me. And I couldn't tie it back for years to my mom and dad's divorce. And so until you recognize that shame that you're leavable, that you can't start to deal with it effectively and learn whose shame is this? Who does this belong to? Most children feel like they were the cause of the divorce because we're just too, we're a nuisance. And so that shame goes inside of them so they don't want to be a nuisance to anybody and it shapes their personality. Being underpaid is shameful at work. Women are still paid less than men which is shameful to women. Women and, uh, yeah, and uh, yelling in a marriage. The, the psychologists say, marriage counselors say that once you start name-calling in a marriage, uh, you're almost completely done. Now, I say the power of God can restore that situation. I'm talking from a natural uh, uh, psychology analysis of human dynamics and relationships. Once you start name-calling, What you're doing is you're dishonoring one another, which is what shaming is. You're taking honor from one another rather than giving honor to one another. A congregation that makes a leader feel incompetent and, uh, uh, well, incompetent, giving a vote of no confidence, shames the leadership, overly overly critical to leadership, can shame leadership into feeling like they can never measure up. 
or a congregation who feels dominated, controlled by leadership where they are acting superior, like they got it all together, and you feel like, oh, man, I'll never be able to make it to their standard, shames a congregation. You can do one more. I think this is all I, I, think this is all I can handle. I mean, I can, can you understand how I can just go on and on and on with shame? There's so many sources of shame. We shame one another all the time with our words, with the spirit of our words, the look on our face, our attitudes toward one another, making people feel smaller, less than, stupid, incompetent. And we sh- what we're doing is we're, we're, we're shaming their, their, who they are and they begin to shrivel up on the inside or they become really defensive and overbearing. But the point is, here is a human being that's supposed to be carrying their own burden and in their backpack, they have got, they're loaded down with imposed shame. A great example, and I want you to look at this, this passage, a great example is the woman who had actual shame, which is the woman caught in adultery. You remember her? John chapter 8. And the religious leaders come to the church and give me one of these shame rocks back. The leaders come to the church with the woman caught in adultery. They've got a rock in one hand and they've got an iPad 3 Bible in the other hand. (laughs) And they throw her down in church. She already has actual shame. And they are quoting scripture and ready to shame her more, put her to death, which is what people that have shame want to do to others. And what does Jesus do? He does not let her own it. Look look at this passage. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Next slide. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this, writing on the ground and what he said, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first only until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. What do you think he wrote on the ground? We can only guess, but an educated guess might be, yeah, she has sinned, but let me see, Frank and Lucy, Joe and Sally, I don't know. Maybe he was writing down the women they had been with. So here these professional religionists who are great at throwing shame on people have their own shame. They're not forgiven. They have not been forgiven. They haven't had their sins relieved. They're just religious and they're mean and they're legalistic and they're angry. And all they know is scripture, but they don't know the heart of God. They find somebody in sin. And rather than being a shame lifter, which is what we're supposed to be in each other's lives, love covers a multitude of sin. We want to be shame throwers. And that usually comes out of our own shame. And so Jesus basically tells them, yeah, she's sinned. She has her own shame, but you guys take your shame and you walk out of the house with it. And so what is the solution to impose shame? Once you start to recognize that much of the shame that you live with, that you're carrying around with you, that makes you insecure and have an inferiority complexes or you're, you're uh, overbearing or however you act out your shame, insecure in your relationship with God or performance-oriented or whatever it might be, once you start recognizing this shame is imposed, rape, 
something as heinous as child molestation where the girl feels dirty when the person that was dirty was the perpetrator, right? How come she feels dirty now, right? She absorbed the shame. And so you got to help that person through say, no, that shame, not that you're a sexual predator, but I am going to say, I'm sorry, this isn't mine. I'm not going to own it. That's a huge moment in an individual's life. When you can recognize the source of that imposed shame and you have the ability, and it usually takes another Christian, another brother or sister to help them do this, let's get that shame off of you. And let's just not own it. And psychologically place it back. Oh, no, you got to carry that. That's your shame. No, you put that on, dude. No, you can't put, no, 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 you put it on. Yeah, I know. See? I know it doesn't feel good, does it? Okay, so that's your shame. That's not mine. That's yours. You got to learn to recognize when somebody's trying to impose their shame on you, and you need to recognize that. But then what we need to do is say, but I want to tell you something. Come here. You don't have to carry that either, man. Let me have that. Let's put this right over here by the feet of the cross. This is... Jesus can take care of my shame and your shame. Amen. (laughs) That is a huge step. And what that does, what what all this relieving of bad shame does is it starts to allow your true personality to come out. The healthy you. The whole you. The you that God intended you to be. Shame is such a powerful force in distorting your personality clouding your motivations and impose shame is a big one so the solution is not to own it the next source of shame and i'm going to close up quickly is this helping anybody today the next source of shame is societal shame societal shame is a big one Today we're uh, having a birthday party at our house and we're inviting a family over from Ramona whose dad uh, is, has gone to prison. And they got the wife and you've got three children. And our child goes to school in Ramona and so it's a friend. And we're thinking about the societal shame on this family. I mean, you know, Ramona is a small town. The children go to school. It's in the papers. It's everywhere. Everybody knows. She has to go grocery shopping. In Ramona, vendors, go to school, pick up your kids. Everybody knows. So we're inviting them to our house today. Because the societal shame on that family, I mean, I think this is what happened to that that dude that was uh, just trying to help people in Africa. You remember that, that deal recently that... That, that uh, what, was, what was it? Coney 2012. Trying to do a good thing. And he just gets obliterated and shamed. I think the societal shame that unrighteously came upon him is what caused him to crack. Then he runs out in the street naked and they say, see, he was a nut job. Societal shame is a powerful thing. Societal shame on the black race in America. Which is why they're trying to still get that shame off and say, we, we count... We have dignity. Women from the 50s that were abused in the women's movement, many times we overreact, 
right? Because they're trying to get the shame off. Children being discounted, discredited. That's why we incorporate the youth church into the big church. We are one big happy family advancing the kingdom of God together and there's no junior Holy Spirit. That's a very important message to give to the young people. You guys working in the preschool and the first, second, third grade, right? Those little ones. I almost always get down like this. Not that I'm Jesus Jr., but I just... this, This kind of a posture is very intimidating for a child. So I like to get down like this and get below them and talk to them. You know what I mean? The, 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 I'm, intuitively, I'm just thinking, I don't want to shame them to where they feel dominated. I want to get down here where now we're equals and we can communicate at an eye-to-eye level. I love this vision that a pastor had one time in one of our regional pastor meetings, which we had a phenomenal meeting this last week. It was unprecedented. About 70 of us clergy came together from the region, youth pastors, senior pastors, associate pastors, um, and then the law enforcement, the sheriff's department, three sergeants showed up, and then the principal from Del Norte High and the principal from Poway High. And then we all came together in a room for two hours and talked about how we were going to reach our community together. It was powerful. Everybody's trying to dance around the separation of church and state and trying to be careful with it, but we all knew lives are at stake. We've got we to figure this out. It was a great meeting. Um, I forget why I went there. What was I saying right before I said that? What's that? Oh, yeah. One of our pastor friends said he had a vision where Jesus rode up to him on a horse, on his white horse, right? Like the Revelation Jesus, the book of Revelation Jesus, rode up to him. And when he said he rode up, rode up to him, when he looked down at him, he said there was no, there was no sense of superiority in Jesus' eyes. And he said it just shocked him. You know, I was walking on this campus one time with my Bible in my hand. And uh, I just felt conspicuous, almost embarrassed. Oh, there's a guy walking on the campus with a Bible in his hand. Because, you know, our society thinks that's becoming more and more thinking that's stupid, right? That you would be a Christian out loud in the society. The German Holocaust is societal shame. You go to Germany, they don't even want to talk to you about it. And so what do we do? We either become mousy or we overreact out of fear and anger and try to dominate. The solution is ignore it and live with personal dignity and divine assignment. Don't react out of shame, but react to God's voice. What did Jesus do? Listen, Jesus had the most societal shame coming upon him than anybody. Jesus was born out of wedlock, accused of being a deceiver of the people, abandoned by everyone, including his closest friends, crucified as the busiest intersection in society. I mean, societal shame is when somebody also doesn't see you and they dishonor you with the identity they put on you, being misunderstood. They said John the Baptist had demons. Just preaching the gospel, and they said he was demon-possessed. They said the same thing about Jesus, but they also said Jesus was a glutton and an alcoholic. And then they strip him naked, hang him on a cross in public, and what does the Bible say? 
and, and Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. So then let's also run the race that is laid out in front of us, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. That's the heavenly society. Let's throw off any extra baggage, get rid of the sin that trips us up, and fix our eyes on Jesus, faith's pioneer and perfecter who endured the cross, ignoring the shame. God, that's powerful. For the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him and sat down at the right side of God's throne, think about the one who endured such opposition from sinners so that you don't be discouraged and you won't give up. This societal shame is trying to be put onto Jesus and the, the thing that gave him the power to ignore the shame. Now, I'm not talking about shame on you should be on you because you've done something wrong and you need to repent from it. We covered that. I'm talking about shame that does not belong to you. And they were trying to shame Jesus. And the way that Jesus was able to ignore the shame was to focus on God. What is God saying about me? Am I pleasing God? Is my conscience clear in God's mind and God's sight? What is God's assignment for me? That is what I'm focused on. And you cannot be a leader in the kingdom of God, or really in any arena, without being able to endure people throwing shame at you and being able to recognize it, shake yourself free of it, and focus on God and your assignment. Well, I tell you, I'm going to uh, say this. We're going to look at the last source, which I didn't catch before. And then we're going to uh, have communion down here for those that would like to come and just lay your shame down at the feet of Jesus and take his body and his blood and be cleansed and walk out of here free of shame. Let him walk you through these other things. But I remember when I first heard about shame, I didn't identify with it until I started hearing the characteristics of it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I identify with a lot of those characteristics. So I went home and I prayed and I asked God, I said, have I been shamed and immediately I had a vision come up from my childhood and he showed me the source of that shame. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I started learning about shame and learning how to uh, recognize these sources of shame. And, and, uh, and then what he taught me over time was that passage with the woman caught in adultery, actual shame, and then the shamers coming in with a rock in the Bible. What he taught me over time that has become the liberator for me is he taught her to listen to his voice. Because Jesus will never shame you. He may correct you, thank God. But even when he corrects you, even a direct rebuke. I mean, I've been rebuked by the Lord before. In a, Mufasa. I mean, it'll, it'll just reverberate through your being when God rebukes you, man. I mean, but when he does it, you just feel... God, I mean, what's the word to describe it? You feel honored. You feel like he loves you. I mean, only he can do that perfectly, right? We all want to mix mercy and truth together just right for our kids and for one another, but only he can do it perfectly. And by learning this truth and really going after it, my, my ears have become much more sensitive to the voice of shame versus the voice of conviction of the Holy Spirit. The voice of shame versus the voice of Jesus. 
And what happens is you begin to recognize shame. Oh, that's shame. That's not coming from Jesus. And how not to react to the shame, but rather react to the voice of Jesus. Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? So you start to follow the voice of Jesus. And I love how he turns to her after he got her shamers out of the room. What a precious Savior. She's already, I mean, don't dogpile the girl, right? I mean, she's already shamed to the bone. Then he turns to her and says, where are your shamers? They're, they're gone. He goes, I don't shame you either. I don't condemn you. But then he says, come and follow me and you'll have the light of life. Sin no more. Come follow me. You'll have the light of life. And others, follow my voice. Follow not only my way of life, but my voice. And when you begin to live by the voice of Jesus, you can hear him rebuke you. He can, t- he can put that pressure in like the psalmist says, You're, you pressed me all night long. I couldn't even sleep because of the conviction of my sin. And then he'll force the confession out of you. And then you get cleansed. Ah, the Spirit of God is renewed in you. And then as you start to learn to walk this way, then you can go to the next stage, which is called perpetual shame. And it's, what are you passing on to those around you? Look what Jesus says about the religious leaders of his day. Let's look at the next passage. Yeah. You don't have a slide for it. All right. The next passage, this is really great. Let me, let me quote this to you. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders of his day. That's my fault, Rob. But I've got it right here on my iPad 3. Yeah, that's what I said. I said, it's not your fault. Didn't I say that? See that? I said, it's my fault. Oh, you say no shame on me? Thank you. Oh, this is the church I want to go to. Isn't that great? Rather than, what an idiot, man. I could do a better job than him. Probably. But I'm called. You're not. Okay. Which, by the way, is... uh. Not a responsibility you might want unless you're called to it. (laughs) Perpetual shame. Listen to what Jesus says about the religious leaders of his day. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice a son of hell. You are. I don't think he read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. This perpetual shame is just going to happen. You can say, I'm not going to do to my kids what my parents did to me, the, the bad part. Come on, I mean, I got some great stuff from my mom and dad, but I also got some, some junky stuff. And so are my kids. I see it. I see it go into them. I see my behavior and I see them behaving like that. I'm like, oh, God, don't do that. Do the good part of me, not the bad part of me. And it's almost too late, right? It's, it's perpetual shame. Sometimes the way you were spoken to, it just comes out of you and you're like, oh, I wish I could take those words back. And sometimes the way you behave and the things you do, it's perpetual shame. And the reality is that I put in here the solution to perpetual shame is to choose what you are going to pass on, either generational curses or kingdom blessings. But I would rather say it's who are you going to pass on? Because you can say what I am going to do is pass on kingdom blessings, not generational curses. But if it's in you, it's going to come through you. You and I are going to pass on who we are. That's why we got to get this done. 
We've got to put faith. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. I have got to get good at self-forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus. John, I forgive you. You blew it. God forgives you. I forgive you. Be your own best friend by the grace of God. Not some weird psychological gymnastics, but really forgive yourself because God already has and get that shame off of you. Otherwise, it's going to go right down to your kids and to those around you because you get angry at yourself and ah, you lash out. Get rid of the shame. Get good at recognizing people trying to shame you and say, oh, no, you didn't. Was that even close? No, not even close. Heather does that so well. I shouldn't have tried it over there. I should have come over here and tried it. Or acting out in societal shame and doing the tuck head and walking around like this or trying to be, you know, oh, I'm better than you are, right? That's societal shame. You've got to just lay that down and say, I'm just going to act like Jesus would want me to act and not defend myself and And if we can learn how to recognize shame and break it, then what we pass on is really the kingdom of God, of grace and peace and health to our children and those around us. And Jesus can handle all of this. Amen? Amen. So what I want to do is I want to come against shame this morning. Would you stand with me? I want to come against shame and... uh, I hope you understand that I feel like I just took a massive topic and just did an overview of it. But you and I have to just walk this out together. Do you guys, are you guys with me on that? And I hope, I I don't think I did, but I hope I don't come across like I have arrived in this. Because I find myself behaving in certain ways and thinking certain things. And I have to recognize, oh, wait a minute, I'm acting out of shame. You guys with me? Okay, this is a powerful thing, but the blood of Jesus, the voice of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is more powerful than shame is my point. But we've got to learn how to recognize it, grab a hold of it, and be victorious in it. But one thing I have learned to do is to tell shame to shut up. Those voices that got a Bible in one hand and a rock in the other, that committee in your head that's always criticizing, that self-criticism, that is not the voice of Jesus. So tell it to shut up. In Jesus' mighty name. And I mean it. That's just not kind of a, like a hype thing to do. It works. It's real. Tell, that, tell those voices to shut up. You're not the voice of Jesus. I don't have to listen to you. Okay, don't say that to me when I'm talking to you. Say it to the voices or to your spouse. That's not going to go over good, okay? You've got to handle this wisely. But I've learned to tell shame to shut up when I recognize it. Some of you, by me talking today, have recognized shame in your life haven't you raise your hand if as i've been talking you've been recognizing see that see just talk about it and identify you start recognizing we're going to tell shame to shut up then what we're going to do we have communion down here and i'm just going to let you take it uh when you're ready to come down after we go after we come against shame together as a congregation then i'm going to just bless you and release you and then you can come down and just receive communion and bring your shame down here to jesus and take his life and walk out of here free from shame. Let's open our hands to heaven.